wanna give love to the city, that's a fact. But you're gonna need help if you wanna make an impact. Well endowed, you want to be well endowed with the Edmonton community. Things really happen when you find that you're well endowed. Hi everyone, welcome to the Well Endowed Podcast. I'm Elizabeth Bonkink. And I'm Andrew Paul. This podcast is brought to you by Edmonton Community Foundation, and we are a proud affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Edmonton is full of generous donors who've created endowment funds at ECF. These funds generate money to support charities in Edmonton and beyond. On this podcast, we share stories about how these funds help strengthen our community, because it's good to be well-endowed. On this episode, we welcome back guest producer Julian Fade to present part two of Trailheads, a history of urban planning in Edmonton. That's right. Trailheads is exploring our city as a physical space, and we've been loving the feedback on this special series. The history of Edmonton and the land it's built on is long and winding. We won't be able to include every detail, so if you'd like to jump in in the comment section on our Facebook page, you can help continue telling the story and discussing the urban planning in Edmonton. We'd love to hear from you. In part two of Trailheads, Julian Fade will touch on Edmonton's fort and post-fort planning history. To help him do that, he'll be joined by former historian laureate Shirley Lowe and city planner and planning historian Eric Backstrom. We hope you enjoy. Take it away, Julian. Welcome back to Trailheads, a history of urban planning in Edmonton. I'm Julian Fade, improviser, fan of cities, and your guide to how Edmonton's physical form came to be. In our last episode, we heard about pre-Fort Edmonton about how it was a place of diversity, collaboration, and ingenuity. An area where many cultures cooperated to build the foundations for a future city. Acknowledging this foundation is only the beginning of our understanding. Colonialism changed Canada and the settlements from coast to coast. In part two of Trailheads, we're going to look at Edmonton's fort and post-fort planning history. We'll be joined by former historian laureate Shirley Lowe. Okay, <laughs> I'm Shirley Lowe, and I'm a former Edmonton Historian Laureate. I um, do research and writing mostly about the heritage of Edmonton. She'll walk us through the colonial land grab during the fur trade, how the soon-to-be city was first subdivided along the North Saskatchewan River, how the delay of a national rail line led to the first real estate bust in the area, how the train finally came to Edmonton, and how an influx of American nationals during the World Wars left lasting impact on how Edmonton was designed. In the second half of this episode, we're joined by Eric Backstrom. Sure. So my name is Eric Backstrom. I'm a senior planner with the city of Edmonton and planning historian. Eric will guide us through the formation of Edmonton's first official planning department and how the influence of modernism in the 1950s and 60s changed the shape of our streets, downtown, and took its lead from the automobile. So buckle up as we begin part two of Trailheads, a history of urban planning in Edmonton. In order to understand more about the colonial beginnings of Edmonton, I spoke to a former City of Edmonton Historian Laureate, Shirley Lowe. Shirley and I chatted by phone about post-Fort Edmonton and how this chunk of land officially became a city and all the bumps and bruises along the way. Let's start with the fur trade. Okay, well, it started a long time ago in 1670 when uh, the uh, King of England, Charles II, sight unseen, decided that he could charter 
the uh, all the land that had water running into the Hudson's Bay to his cousin Prince Rupert and uh, and his company of uh, Hudson's Bay fur traders. Now they had no idea how big that was in modern terms. It took in most of what is now Ontario and Quebec and all of the the Prairie provinces. It took them 125 years to get to what is now Edmonton, or at least in in the area. And they followed what was the Northwest Company, uh, these this group of in, insurgents that managed to uh, trade all the way west into our area. The fur trade brought a whole lot of people to this area. They set up numerous forts to facilitate that trading, with the now famous slash infamous Hudson Bay Company becoming the dominant player. Eventually, in 1867, when the country of Canada was formed, it was a much smaller country than current maps would have you believe. The Prime Minister at the time, the equally famous and infamous John A. Macdonald, had big plans for his country. And he wanted British Columbia to be part of it because he wanted the West Coast as well. He negotiated with them to pay off their debts and to connect them, which is what they wanted. He offered a, a train and they committed to that, that they would come into Confederation, provided it arrived in 10 years. Now, this was important uh, because the Dominion had to negotiate with the Hudson's Bay Company for Rupert's Land in order to get the train service into British Columbia, or at least to the border of British Columbia. So in 1870, they purchased from the Hudson's Bay Company Rupert's Land, and they paid a million dollars for it, which was real money in those days, and they gave 55,000 acres to the Hudson's Bay Company, mostly around their existing forts. In Edmonton, they claimed, the Hudson's Bay Company claimed 3,000 acres, which was in modern terms from the river to 118th Avenue, from 101st Street to 121st Street. By claiming vast swaths of land as their own, the Hudson Bay Company essentially became the area's first land developer. And a few people were well set up to make a pretty penny on the land they had, in fact, stolen from Indigenous peoples, which the Hudson Bay suddenly had control over. Mostly Hudson's Bay guys and anyone who'd managed to walk the three months from Winnipeg had claimed the river lots on either side of the Hudson's Bay Reserve and, of course, across the river. Now, this was not their land to buy or sell. They were sitting on it or basically squatting on it until the, uh, until the Dominion surveyors came and, and made any of those exchanges legal. So they started to subdivide the bottom half or at least the bottom of their reserves. So from the top of Bank to a a road that they cut out and named Jasper Avenue, they created a a grid system blocks and started to sell off uh, their property. The selling off of this property was going well for the Hudson Bay Company, contingent on a train making its way through the northern route of the Yellowhead Pass. Eventually, it became clear that the Canadian Pacific Railway wasn't coming through Edmonton and would instead take a southern route. This led to the area suffering its first real estate crash, the first of many. As it turned out, Edmonton was the last city on the prairie to get trains. But when they came, we got a lot of them. The first one arrived on the south bank of the North Saskatchewan River in 1891, courtesy of the CPR. Initially, it was too expensive to build a bridge across the river. So the CPR began developing the south bank. It put in a grid system and dug up a road called White Avenue. The arrival of the train spurred development as thousands of people flocked to Edmonton. 
People no longer have to travel to the area by foot or Red River cart. But the train arriving on the south bank was a sore point for the residents north of the river. Ferries were still the only way to cross the river, and development was happening faster on the south side. Eventually, it was Wilfrid Laurier's federal government that came in to finally connect the shores. At the time, Edmonton was a liberal stronghold, and Laurier played to his base by building the Edmonton Bridge, which we now know as the Low Level Bridge. By 1902, there was a rail line across the Low Level, officially connecting the two sides by train. This new line initially ran from 80th Avenue to the Rossdale Flats, and eventually up to the 102nd Avenue Bridge at 127th Street, where it connected to the Canadian Northern Railway System. The Low Level Bridge put the ferries out of business, as they ushered in a new era of how Edmontonians moved through their burgeoning city. But there was another era on its way, the era of the automobile, and this era was coming in on the wings of American ideals. As the war began, Edmonton became home to many American soldiers, and this influx of American immigrants would have a lasting impact on how Edmonton's infrastructure evolved. And of course, because we hadn't built anything for a couple of decades, there was an extreme housing shortage. As a matter of fact, the Americans who brought in 10,000 civilian personnel to support the army that they brought in as well. The American forces threatened to leave the area if the city didn't build more housing. So, up sprang a lot of wartime housing, especially around the Blatchford Airfield. The city didn't want to lose a huge contingent of immigrating Americans and their families. So, but they brought in a lot of money, and it changed the culture. So we went from being a very British city to becoming kind of an Americanized city. Just as it had been thousands of years before, Edmonton was still a gathering place of diverse cultures. The city had waves of immigration in the late 1890s and beyond. Post-Second World War, many Europeans settled in Edmonton. But it was this American influence, combined with that of the British, that set the stage for how our city would look and feel. So with that came a lot of just sort of the different ways that, that, and attitudes that Americans have that were substantially different than the British. And, but those influences were there and they stayed there. And then as technology improved, for instance, television and radio and, and all of those, the influences, the American influences, were now completely continental. And even in 51, or in the late 40s and, and early 50s, when we had a, a choice of improving our streetcar system or taking or buying buses. We chose the buses and we chose the car. An American and British influence to planning dictated much of the physical design of our roadways and early land use. Edmonton had fully embraced the new technology of the motorized vehicle and never looked back. Well, even when, when we started with the suburbs in the 50s and 60s, there were people who were isolated. I mean, in those, at those times, people had one car. And so it went off to work in the daytime and left everyone else stranded in the neighborhood. And basically, we had no amenities in the neighborhood. There were schools and possibly a church. But everything else, first of all, you know, we had the, we had the shopping strips um, on the, you know, the external areas. And then we had these streets that wound back and forth. They would take you hours to get through. You know, you couldn't get straight to anything. 
And so you needed a car. And when you started getting more cars, you needed a field in front of your shopping area to park the car because they don't just disappear. We can't do anything other than support the car culture. The, the big freeway systems, the big roads that basically sterilize acres and acres of land. If you look at the, at, you know, at the, at the big roads and the big exchanges and, and think about how that could be a community or a farm or something that was more productive than just running cars back and forth on it. Uh, and then we wonder why our transit system doesn't work because we haven't built anything that will accommodate that. We're all about the car. And then once you get into that, you have to have your three-car garage because now you have at least three vehicles and you have to have that to move anywhere. So we we haven't, I think we're slowly starting to understand that there are other uses for roads other than just getting a car from A to B, but it's not really happening quickly. Edmonton's early reliance on the automobile was cemented in place by early planning efforts to make driving easy and safe. In doing so, the balance of power shifted from pedestrians and train cars to the private automobile. I wanted to get an idea of how planning worked in early Edmonton and how it put the city on a path to car dependency. To learn more, I spoke with a real live planner and someone who knows his planning history. Sure. So my name is Eric Backstrom. I'm a senior planner with the city of Edmonton and planning historian. For many people, the term planner is in regards to one specific job. A planner is also the metaphorical person we shake our fists at when our intersection is poorly designed or a bike lane suddenly ends. In reality, a planner can mean any number of different jobs with different tasks that are all part of a larger machine that is city building. From the highest perspective, a city planner is a person who looks after the, the growth and the evolution of these human settlements we call cities where most of us live. But my definition of urban planning is pretty broad. I think that there have been long before we had planning associations and, uh, and, and university planning programs, we had people who were doing what I consider to be urban planning and uh, in some pretty interesting ways. The job of a planner didn't always exist. As a profession, it grew out of necessity. Its goal, the health and well-being of city dwellers. The planning profession as we understand it today really comes out of the Industrial Revolution. So if you think about the festering, sordid, uh, industrial cities like you know Liverpool or or Birmingham in England or maybe Chicago in the 1880s or whatever that you know there were a lot of people crowded into very dense places and there was a this mixture of housing and shops and industries and it was especially the industries because industrial revolution there were all these you know plants spewing coal and sometimes uh, emissions a lot worse than coal uh, than coal emissions that people were living right next to and there was a lot of sanitation problems and you know cholera and that kind of thing and really coming out of a public health movement which is fascinating today in light of you know covid-19 and physical distancing but coming out of that public health movement there's this interest in changing the way we live and and changing the way our settlements work and so that's where the planning profession was born you get the first thinkers like Ebenezer Howard who said like let's we can take people out of this festering industrial city and we can put them in this idyllic you know new town you know have the best of both worlds where they can sort of have 
urban proximity to each other, but not have all the, the negatives like the uh, industrial smells and, and so forth. I wanted to know how early planning in Edmonton took shape, who influenced where we are today, and what decisions were made that we're now stuck with. So Alberta had planning legislation back to 1912, and then planning legislation started to be adopted. So 1909 in Britain, and then the legislation that was passed in Alberta in 1912 was, was really based on that going. And it was really after World War II in Edmonton that you know, professional planner was a job. The first person we as a municipality paid to do urban planning was in the late 20s. Just before the depression kicked in, we hired a, a part-time uh, town planning assistant, as I think he was called. And then that, that went away in the depression. It was after World War II that we actually got a formal planning department. Edmonton's first town planner was a man named John Tangeray. Yes, like the gin. Perhaps some of Edmonton's neighborhoods were planned under the influence of his namesake? I digress. Tangeray had done some surveying work before World War I, but never received certification because he enlisted. After the war, he worked on a planning project in Vancouver before returning to Alberta when a colleague was hired as the provincial planning director in 1929. Tangeray worked part-time for the province and part-time for the city. His work at the city included developing a major streets plan that was adopted in 1930. Tangeray's aim was to modernize the city and, generally, make it easier to drive. The planning department began to grow and other elements of Edmonton city planning began to take shape. So the thinking at the time was they would do a comprehensive plan for the city and that was going to be done in different installments, the first of which was a major streets plan. So there's a document that dates from 1930 that shows the street pattern as existed as it existed at the time, and then you know changes the street pattern that Tangeray uh, felt should be done to bring the city up to sort of to, to modern times. Alas, Tangeray would not remain at the city to see his plan come to fruition. As the Great Depression worsened, Tangeray was laid off in 1933. It was Edmonton's first attempt at modernizing its urban planning, but would not be its last. And then gradually, as the city grew, the, the number of employees grew and you got more specialized attention. So, you, so again, in the late 20s, you got the town planner. And then um, again, after World War II, when things started to pick up again, 1949, and, and oil had just been discovered in Leduc, the city of Edmonton hired Noel Dant to be the beginning of the planning department. And so at that point, you got, you know, you got a specialized town planner. And there had always, uh, for a number of years, there had been a, a city architect and obviously a city engineer. And so then they, you know, they got assistance and the assistants got assistance. And then you were able to formalize the, the procedures and processes for how these things would come about. So if you go to the plans and effect page on the city's website, there's a lot of plans there. And so we're, we're now at the point of saying, We've been we've been doing this for really in earnest for say seventy years. How you know the planning department is about seventy years old at this point, and a lot of the plans that are in effect are fifty years old. Maybe we should rationalize this. These fifty-year-old plans were, for a time, still used to determine how Edmonton would organize its city. In many cases, these plans didn't keep up with the wishes and needs of a growing and changing population. This left residents begging for something more modern. Interestingly enough, a yearning for the modern is in part what gives us the city we have today. 
One thing that I don't think gets enough attention is the, the cultural phenomenon that we call modernism. So if we think about, like we think about modernism in terms of architecture, and, and modernism was this, was this movement that has its roots back, you know, a number of decades, but it really, it was really about breaking with the past and searching for new forms of expression. So if you go to the ledge grounds and you look at the lovely Beaux-Arts legislature building made out of sandstone, and then you, you turn around and you look at the legislature annex building, you say, whoa, that was a really big change with the past. And likewise, if you're at the U of A campus and you're looking at the arts building, and then you turn around and you look at Hub Mall, you say, that's a break from the past, right? If you think about it. Modernism also affected urban planning too. And so after World War II, and this goes back to that question about what is planning and you know, what do we think of the, you know, the planning efforts of the past? Uh, after World War II, we had these professionally trained planners who you could say were largely modernists. They, they really broke from the past. So a lot of them were, were from England. No disrespect to British people whatsoever. Uh, you know, that's just where the urban planning schools at the time were. And uh, you know, our first urban planner, Noel Dant, was from England. And so he would often recruit people back from the UK to join him. So, but they were like, again, there was a break from the past. If you think about the, you know, the traditional street pattern in Edmonton or so the, the pre-World War II street pattern, it's pretty much a grid. It's the gridiron. It's like straight streets with, you know, rectangular blocks. And they broke with that. They said, hey, we can do these neighborhood units. And so you started to get neighborhoods like Park Allen or Strathern or Sherbrooke. Or, you know, there's a whole bunch of them around the city. That uh, that have curvy streets. It's fascinating to look at the reports from the from the early 1950s. One of one of the first issues that Noel Dant bit his teeth into was lack of parking downtown. It was this huge, urgent issue in the in the 1950s. We need more parking, and so they started thinking about parking structures. And so some of the first, you know, thinking about about structured parking or parkades, as we call them came out of that period. And then demolition of old buildings for surface parking lots. Again, today, we look at that as urban planners and we say, we have so many parking lots that sap the vitality of the downtown. And, and so, you know, over a number of you know, the last 20 years or so, we've been trying to, trying to fill in those missing teeth, so to speak, with real activity in life. But in the 50s, it was this, oh, we need to reject the past and we need to really go for this newfangled form of transportation without thinking about all the consequences. And, you know, there, there have been that the automobile brought unprecedented benefits, but there were also some really serious costs that we weren't anticipating as a society back then. The planners in the 1950s also either actively wanted to demolish older parts of the city that they deemed to be slummy or not quite as good, or at least they, you know, they were relatively tolerant about that and, and accepted it. And so, you know, huge portions of the older part of our city were demolished and sent to the landfill. And so modernism was alive and well in planning in the 1950s and into the 60s. And, and, and you know, there's threads that continue even to the present day. That thread of modernism can be seen in Edmonton by way of the knot of streets, overpasses, and highways. But it's also invisible, thanks to the many historical buildings that have been taken down in favor of a new aesthetic and modern land uses. All of these decisions work in concert to make way for a car-first transportation model. This singular focus has left Edmonton with a car dependency that has proven hard to kick. 
The car has tremendous impact on the shape of the city and how the city functions, for sure. Whether that's bigger than anything else, I can't think of anything else that would be bigger when you take, you know, streets and alleys and parking lots and that kind of stuff. Cars have definitely had an impact. And again, there's it's it's facilitated a lot of economic development, but there's been significant impacts. There are health considerations, just like, you know, lack of physical activity in, in getting to and fro has had a huge impact on people. Just the, the livability of neighborhoods with busy roads and uh, obviously there's, there's air pollution considerations and safety, like just terrible situations of big, heavy vehicles striking poor, you know, innocent, def- defenseless pedestrians. And I look at the automobile as this newfangled device that we decided that we would start planning our city around without thinking about all the implications. Just like Edmonton has largely been built since the inception of the automobile. And so our urban form is largely predicated on meeting the needs of the automobile. As planners and and people who influence planning, which is Every citizen who may may listen to this podcast, uh, you know, every politician, every every business person, we we have to be humble. We have to recognize that we may not have all the answers, and and we may make mistakes. And I think be okay with that, but we have to anticipate what's coming, and that's the real the essence of planning is saying where are we and where do we need to get to. And that may be because there's a problem that we have to fix or there's an opportunity that we want to realize. But one way or another, let's look ahead. Let's see where we want to get to and then let's find the right way. And let's do it in as collaborative and as intelligent and and kind a fashion as possible. Planners are asked to think ahead and to organize a future that requires billions of dollars in infrastructure investment and the trust of millions of urban inhabitants. These planners are always looking 20 to 50 years into the future to predict how the built environment will change. But they're not alone. An engaged and enthusiastic collection of Edmontonians are along for the ride. On the next episode, I'll speak to two of those Edmontonians who have helped make their city an inclusive one. We're going to attempt to understand Edmonton's car culture. I'm already prepared for the angry emails. See you then. And thanks for listening to Trailheads. A History of Urban Planning in Edmonton. Thanks very much to Shirley Lowe and Eric Backstrom for sharing their time with us. And many thanks to Julian Fade for bringing us that story. Stay tuned for part three of Trailheads in our next episode. While you're waiting for the next episode to drop, head on over to ecfoundation.org to see what's been happening at Edmonton Community Foundation. It's been a busy couple weeks. It sure has. On October 6th, we launched our 2020 Vital Signs Report looking at Edmonton's millennial generation. Did you know that there are more millennials in Edmonton than baby boomers and silent generation combined? One in four people living in Edmonton are a millennial. And that gives them a lot of voting power. The report looks at how this group is creating trends, how they're shaping our world as digital natives, and how the issues that affect them, like housing costs and a gig economy, will have effects for all of us. Well, friends, that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks so much for sharing your time with us. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, be sure to share it with your friends and family. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Those reviews help new listeners find us. And visit us on Facebook, where you can share your thoughts and see some pictures from the podcast. Thanks again for tuning in. We've been your hosts, Andrew Paul. And Elizabeth Bonking. Until next, next time. time. The Well-Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation. 
and edited by Lisa Pruden. You can visit our website at wellendowedpodcast.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And follow us on Twitter at The ECF. Our theme music was created by Octavo Productions. Check them out at octavoproductions.com. And as always, don't forget to visit Edmonton Community Foundation at ecfoundation.org. Well Endowed.